Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to The Vault, a podcast from the New York Institute for the Humanities. I'm Robert Boynton. In the spring of 2006, Robert Coover spoke at the Institute. Coover is the author of over a dozen postmodern novels. He was one of the early supporters of electronic fiction, which he defended in The End of Books, a 1992 New York Times essay. Coover established Brown University's MFA program in digital language arts, where he teaches courses on experimental narrative and literary hypermedia. Of late, I've been talking about digital literature. I've been involved, as many of you know, in creating the first ever hyperfiction workshop about a decade and a half ago and gone on teaching in digital literary hypermedia. Current courses are in what we call cave writing, which is immersive virtual reality. We have a space we go into and we're trying to create writing that fits into that space. Yesterday afternoon, we were developing a new program for non-programmers, so you could do it yourself. Same so this is at Brown University. At Brown University, yeah. where you can actually write, let's say, a hyperfiction and have it appear in various places in the universe as you, say, traverse through it to be able to read it. Writing students will be able to do that on their own. The rest of it requires sound engineers who are electronic music composers and uh, programmers and 3D modelers and so on. Last year alone I was in well, Spain and then Italy and England of course and then a little run through uh, China, Korea and Japan showing us at various universities this kind of stuff. It requires you know projection systems and so on. So what I thought I'd do today is go back instead to the deepest roots and talk about the kind of opposite end of it. I don't know, did you announce that it was called Myth, Tale, yeah, and, and Writer? I wanted to show you this because it's something that I've been involved in for a long time, actually since the beginning of writing as a writer was this kind of full frontal confrontation with myth and tale. So tale. Tail is the underbelly of myth. Myth is head, tail, body, myth, power, tail, resistance, myth, nice, tail, naughty, myth, structure, tail, flow, myth, king, tail, fool, myth, sacred, tail, profane, myth, father, tail, child, though the child, as always, is the father's father, myth, tragic, tale comic. Myths are communal, dreamlike fantasies. Freud's, we are talking about Freud a moment ago at table, Freud's daydream of the race. Tales are more about a person's waking life, where animals talk, magic abounds, and revenge is sweet. Myth lives in bounded places between which wars ensue. Tales are, like many of their heroes, Homeless wanderers, rarely partisans. The folktale has no landlord and ancient proverb. Whereas myth is meant to introduce the young to the reality principle, tale is said to be a subversive alternative to the official notion of reality. Yet both are archly conservative, madly wishful, shy of the real. What if in myth is truth, dogma, in more modest tale, a populist teasing of the imagination. Yet tale is governed by dogma too, a subtler one and more tenacious. Genre is what it's sometimes called pattern, the way things are. 
Myth environs us, tales do too. They, like the writer, reside within the consciousness industry. Much of that industry is devoted to sleep and a pampering of the unconscious. Consciousness is an accomplishment which requires enormous effort and so can be maintained only for limited periods before, with great relief, we sink back into a mindless stupor. Tale has heroic tales about the effort. Myth celebrates the stupor. The consciousness industry, like any other, survives on profits, and stupor is more profitable than that true consciousness they ostensibly espouse, and so, feeling blameless, they peddle mostly soporifics. The emergence of full consciousness is so rare and difficult, it's often felt as supernatural. Sleep, our original Edenic condition, the seductive natural state. Odysseus, the adventurous tale hero, resisted the seductive siren songs of blissful sleep, choosing the pursuit of wakeful consciousness even so, he, of course, he had to be lashed to the mast, but most don't. It's too hard, hurts too much. Settle into prime time. Instead, go to a movie, watch a game, or play one. Better not to read at all, certainly nothing by the writer, who, as the story goes, tale, once uponing, sallies forth on the next and next adventure. Myth, same family, stays at home and rules the roost. The writer, tale-like, sallies forth as well, and as though a character in tale's own tale bumps into tale upon the road. Sometimes they fight, sometimes they carouse and drink together. The writer's always wary, though, for tale is a tricky bastard without scruples who can catch you from behind and steal your wit without your even knowing it. Well, that's bad, but can be worse when myth's the foe. To be chicaned by tale, the writer knows, is not the same as falling into myth's iron clutches. Tale will often laugh and let you go. Myth is fiercer, humorless, unyielding. Tale sends you down the open road, even if it's always the same road, Myth's mansion, for all its inviting intricacy of well-appointed rooms and corridors, has drawn curtains and locked doors and attic and basement horrors one cannot always avoid. The writer, housebreaker by profession, intrudes brazenly upon Myth's mansion at the risk of getting lost and never coming out again, and at the greater risk of finding comfort in it, as so many do, and forgetting the reasons for breaking in, which are to do a bit of creative redecorating, let the light in, turn the statuary back to flesh again, stake revenant hearts with jokes. Yes, but more than that, its foundations are imaginary. The writer knows this to bring the whole house down, if possible. Thus, the writer, too, madly wishful, avoids the real. Such are the self-delusions necessary for all romantic <coughs> quests, this no exception. 
where myth is no pushover, has been in the neighborhood as long as memory, that writer's days, contrarily, are precious few. You just get started, and one surprise, tales here. Myth's unreliable servant, guests sometime guide, providing relief from tedium and occasional glimpses of the floor plan. Myth is master of this domain, and tale is much constrained, unsmiling, out of rags and into uniform, unvoiced by the master's insistence upon proprieties, but able still on the sly to lift carpets or floorboards to reveal the buried remnants of the original humble outdoor stage, or to blight the grandeur of a room with a gassy burp or the subtle stubbing of a toe. Tale also, with quiet nods, points out the exits, useful even when a trickster tale, their trompe-l'oeils only. If nothing else, tale touring targets keeps the writer in motion. Keep moving, that's what Odysseus said. Stop your ears and keep moving. The writer, from time to time, when weary of these airless exploits, escapes to mix again with a hoi polloi and breathe the common air, and looking back, sees that Myth's mansion, for all the writer's heroic depredations, is still as imposing as ever, seemingly unchanged. Hmm, does it tilt just a little to the left now? Is that a broken window? No, probably just the way the shadows fall. Along comes Raggedy Tail again, and they have a friendly tussle just for old time's sake. And while Tail has the writer pinned, in response to the writer's disheartened mien, tells stories of heroes who, against insuperable odds, defeated giants, beheaded dragons, won princesses and kingdoms. In each of these stories, the writer knows the hero was defeated, but the story doesn't say so, the moral being, you are a clown. This is what you do. Take your falls, get up again to take another. Tale also tells the story of the minstrel, whose only listeners were animals who simply wished to eat him, but were stayed by the minstrel's music. Well, eventually, of course, when the minstrel ran out of fresh tunes, they did eat him. But meanwhile, the consciousness industry maintains Myth's mansion very well, repairs the road Tale travels on, and tolerates the writer when it's convenient to do so, preferring marginalization to the gallows, not always, well aware that the writer's bad behavior will be industrial fodder a generation on, the stuff of t-shirts and classrooms and bitter laments about the very industry that profits from them. Thus the writer's heroics, for all their grand ambitions, go largely unnoticed in their time, come to little, except for irony. It's the gift of irony, denied myth and mostly over tail's head that is the writer's portion. No better illustration of this little parable than the first extended handwritten narrative known to us, the Epic of Gilgamesh, with its mythic hero and his folktale companion in a story reimagined 
in all its irony by a gifted writer. There's not much magic in this world that we've been given, but there's a touch of it in the strange power of artists, living often as not in remote isolation, to release from time to time a small package of condensed and organized energy, a portion, as it were, of their own mortality, and thereby somehow touch the passing lives of other such beings, not only of their own place and time, but worldwide and across languages and centuries, helping these dying creatures to escape or at least endure their own material confines, their bodies close geography, bitterly narrow span. Of great narrative artists of this sort, the first I know of is this unknown second millennium BC Akkadian author who gathered together a lot of disconnected Sumerian myths and tales about a culture hero, long since dead, about a millennium before, the religion and society too, long dead, though still casting an aura over the present, and integrated them into an utterly novel work of art for his own time and place, not a mere compilation of old tales from an ancient culture, but a complete fictional rewrite, all the borrowed material at the service of a new integrative theme. All the contradictory transitional elements harmonize now into a single whole, if an ironic one, and many elements, especially structural ones, probably completely original, especially those having to do with the friendship of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Later revisions of this old Babylonian text, including that credited to an exorcist priest named Senleki Unini, six centuries later, which became by tradition the original and standard, padded the Akkadian text out, framed the story more clearly, threw in the popular flood story as an entertainment, made some stylistic changes and greater use of recurrent motifs, and burdened the narrative with a meaningless addendum, but otherwise adhered to the original Akkadian plot. That's the text that traditionally gets translated, having the luck of being more physically complete, but that's all right. All literature is a communal activity undertaken by a lot of people, often anonymous through time. The Gilgamesh epic is not only a wonderful adventure story, rich with incident and spectacular, closely observed details, it's also an artistically coherent exploration of paradox with its significant imagery intelligently interwoven through the text, a cuneiform text, needless to say, wherein such weaving could not just be penciled in, working its way imaginatively from the known toward the unknown, like a good novel, the first of which does not appear for another three millennia plus across the Mediterranean in Spain, fiction as a process of shared and paradigmatic self-discovery. Gilgamesh's quest is futile. The message conservative and pessimistic, yet the very quest itself seems to revive in us an appetite for such pursuits, and so with writerly irony undermines its own alleged message, which is more or less if a demigod like Gilgamesh fails to attain everlasting life, what hope does a mere mortal have 
adjust, accept. The Sumerians themselves, of course, were, as we all know, an interesting people. They are held by their advocate historians to be the creators of the world's first real civilization, the inventors of writing, almost everything else. They irrigated farms, built cities with magnificent temples, which had beautiful reliefs and mosaics. They had schools. To be a scribe was a career option. So was teacher, scholar, archivist, mathematician. Their language became the Ur language, the Latin of the ancient Mesopotamian world, and their text long held to be in some manner sacred. Therefore, the anonymous Akkadian author was working with materials not unlike what the mythic characters of the Hebrews, Greeks, Christians, Romans, and Muslims are for us, blending disparate elements from various sources. The great invention of that original author, or authors, though I prefer to think of him as one, was probably the conversion of Enkidu, in the servant, into Enkidu, the friend and equal. In all known Sumerian poems, he's only the king's servant, thereby eroding the distance between myth and tale and making more plausible the terrible shock Gilgamesh suffers at Enkidu's death, a shock powerful enough to send him off on his obsessive quest for immortality, which in turn gives the plot, the epic, its plot and its unity. And then, one thing leading to another, that's how we keep going along, having to account for this friendship, it becomes necessary to back up and reinvent Enkidu's origins, which led to the prefatory description of Gilgamesh's high-handedness in Uruk and the story of Enkidu's magical creation in early life, based partly on other Sumerian folktale motifs. It also created openings for a bit of comedy, not unlike that which Sancho offers Cervantes, and eventually led to an opportunity in Tablet 11 to highlight the benefits life offers short of immortality by referring back to Enkidu's early life. Not that Cervantes would have known about the Gilgamesh, of course, the only surviving seriously damaged stone tablets lay buried in the ruined library of Ashurbanipal for a couple of millennia from sometime during the first millennium BC until the middle of the 19th century. You can almost feel how, from the central plot of Gilgamesh's quest for immortality as inspired by the death of his friend, the author worked forward and backward through the text, building in all these elements, borrowing whatever he could, making up the rest. The early humanizing of Enkidu, for example, he seems to lose his animal speed and identity and maybe acquires a human odor, among other things. No doubt another invention, though based on common wild man folktales, tale visiting myth's mansion, as you might say, links Enkidu to the theme of acceptance of the human lot. By contrasting a life devoid of human civilization, the epic underlines the satisfactions that civilized human life offers that minimum amount of meaning which is available to mortal man tending to elevate simple hedonism and family life over glory or militaristic heroism. The story now, thanks to the transformation of Enkidu, seems written for the many, not the heroic few. To be alive is better than to be dead. Enjoy life, if you can, while it passes by. The life you pursue, you shall not find, the barmaid tells Gilgamesh, trying to dissuade him from his futile journey. When the gods created mankind, death for mankind they set aside, life in their own hands retaining. As for you, Gilgamesh, let your belly be full, make merry day and night, 
of each day make a feast of rejoicing, day and night dance and play, a carpe diem message Sancho himself would have embraced. The work's conclusion beyond that pride of place is given to what Gilgamesh saw and learned, culminating in his writing it down, his engraving of his adventure in an inscription, perhaps on a stella or on lapis lazuli, or even on the walls of Uruk themselves. And not so much about his heroic deeds, for he failed in his quest after all, that damned serpent having done it to gullible humankind again, as about the true outcome of his quest, the understanding which he achieved. Gilgamesh moves from heroic idealism, the assault on the sacred forest and on the goddess Ishtar, to the everyday courage of the real world, bringing back to Uruk, yes, a certain resignation and true newfound sobriety, but also, much as the great dawn does 30 to 35 centuries later, a whacking good story, thus achieving a kind of ironic version of the immortality that he sought. In the end, it's not the mythic god or the folkloric hero who is celebrated, but the writer, who of course is not Gilgamesh at all, for such are the writer's own irony, but that forgotten Akkadian scribe of old Babylonian times. May his bones rest in peace. That was a kind of residue from a Brown class I once taught on uh, exemplary ancient fictions, where we went from Gilgamesh on to the really into medieval romance, kind of aiming at the Celestina, everything you talked about. It. Yes. How, how authorial is such an author? I mean, of course, this comes up in relation to myth and tale, but it also, of course, comes up in relation to biblical redactors. How are we to take, are we at risk of seeing the, the author as more of a, a writer in the, in the modern sense or less of a writer in the modern sense than, than he may or he or she may be? Of course, the epic, as we know, it went through a lot of hands of redactors. I think that what my feeling is, and most authorities seem to feel the same way, that there was one moment, a turning point, when this, and that's the old version that we only kind of see by Ur tablets, not by, you know, the more complete stuff that was done a few centuries later. But there seemed to have been this moment when these tales were gathered together and constructed around this theme, and it seems to be the moment when this decision was made to kind of join the hero and the folkloric character together and in order to give the hero something to mourn, some reason for his quest. So it was like a, a novelistic idea that someone had. Now the text itself may have gone not, not only because of people having different ideas, but the language changes too over centuries. And so we assume that a lot of the stylistic changes that took place between the Akkadian version and the one that's attributed to this priest, were there for reasons of making the work understandable to new generations coming along with slightly different languages. But the structure seems kind of the same, and there's only this, it isn't there, and then it is there suddenly. And I tend to feel this was like a novelist discovered a theme and worked out the way to tell it. And then once it gets told, like now, I mean, we go on retelling each other's stories all the time, but that particular moment was a kind of turning point for the literature itself. It's different from the way that the, you mentioned, for example, the Bible and how much of the, all the redactors who at work at that. And this was more of a kind of group exercise, but even so one can spot 
moments that were kind of authorial moments, especially behind the, the Genesis story. Those were like continuing folkloric elements that just slowly got absorbed, but somebody had to make a decision about the juxtapositions. But the Gilgamesh epic is the one that strikes me as the most writerly in that moment of altering the original materials. Yeah. Where did the Icelandic edits fit into this? Is it, was that prior to, or? Oh, no, they come much later, much later. They're modern compared to this. We're going back here. The time of Sumerians was like the third millennium BC. Because the first writers we have were, was being put down as little um, tales. And it's the libraries of that stuff that was available to the Akkadian writer, and he put all that together. I suppose one would find similar stories in looking at the Eddas and the uh, sagas, that when folkloric materials get translated into full-bodied works, and probably one could find the same experience of discovering the writer amongst this gathering communal material. But it would be, you know, since about the 14th century or something like that. Did Homer have any knowledge of No, I don't think so. It's not likely because mostly the stuff, if he did, it would have been by translation through, you know, other stories like the, a lot of the Sumerian and the stuff from that area, Mesopotamian area moved west by way of the Hittites and in a, in a sense across Asia Minor, across the Turkish area. But they wouldn't have been original, they wouldn't have been that epic, they would have been other versions of those early tales that would have been just passed on, at least to my knowledge. I'm not a scholar in that sense, but I, I don't think they would have, you know. You use the phrase exemplary fiction, and the funny thing is you wrote a fiction that became exemplary just last month. Your first novel, Origin of the Brunus, which some people may not know, was a novel about, a kind of millennial novel about a religion that begins out of the ashes of coal mining disaster in a town in, I think it was in Pennsylvania. Well, I'm, I'm not saying where it is, but <laughs> and, uh, it's sort of there's everywhere. one survivor whose name is Giordano, Giordano Bruno, Bruno Giovanni. who becomes the figurehead of a new religion. And I was thinking so much about that book during the time of the, the awful mining disaster in Tom and Belvin as I kept thinking, Somebody is going to ask you to write an op-ed piece. Of course, nobody did. But I wonder what your thoughts were, as you undoubtedly watched what we all watched and, and thought about writing a novel in 1966, which essentially prefigures well, I was watching with both eyes, as it were, because I'm actually, after all these years of experimental writing, I'm actually writing a sequel to The Brunus. It's called The Brunus Holy March, and I'm about, about a third of the way through it, and about 150,000 words, something like that. It's going to be a big book. And, of course, it was like a double echo there. I was reliving the first book in all of its visceral nature, and at the same time, projecting ahead into what I'm doing now, which is a book that takes place about five years later. The first part of the disaster made me feel good that I'd done the research right for how they brought us themselves off, what these guys did, and how they died anyway. I mean, this was all part of the Bruno story, with the one survivor again really coming out of it just as Bruno did, by being in a kind of lucky place, in his case, a little bit of extra oxygen in his thing, which in my guy's case, he's up above where the heavier gases are below him. But then I just 
turned to Pilar and said, now we've got to see if this guy comes out with some special creed. Of course, what you saw was the Christian nature, fundamentalist Christian nature of the families and their expectations before what they knew, whether they had survivors or not, their celebrations when they thought they had survived and the form they took, and then the nature of their feelings afterward. A lot of interviews with neighbors and friends. And these people did date with the characters who formed my cult. They were not Giovanni Bruno's lapsed Catholic, but the crowd forming around them were or evangelical Christians. Watching, watching the events on television, that the re religiosity with which the, the people in the town around approached it, you began to understand how religions form. It, it cracks open the world in some kind of meaning. Of it. So thanks for writing that book so well, I can understand what happened. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about going from your vision of this kind of free-form, communal set of folkloric things that an authorial spark brings together to the tale, mm -hmm. and then what you're doing now in the cave, which in some ways seems the opposite. An author who creates a tale who, in hypertextual computer stuff, is designed to dissolve into the mass of become folklore. The other and to what extent do you see, uh, where do you put what's going on in the cave? This is the name of this place that he does his stuff, his magic and brown, in that tradition. Well, to back up a little bit, this notion of interactive fiction, which has come to be so much talked about since the arrival of the internet, especially, but earlier on, just the computer itself, in which the reader becomes partly the author of the text in the sense that the reader chooses the routes by which the text is to be read, and the author loses control over this, and the reader takes control in that respect. So the author loses some of his or her authority. That's a, a disputable thing, partly because whatever you do, you can, let's say, a radical version of it is a poetry generator where you just hit a button and you get a poem that's being generated. And then you hit a button and another different poem comes out. And there doesn't seem to be any authors sitting there doing that. It's just a machine. But in truth, it's all been created by that author. And so it's a more complex work of art, literary art, in that it hasn't been pencil on paper. It's another way. But you're still taking in all that work. So the same with an interactive work. These are interactive works, by the way, are not choose-your-own-adventure things. They're not things you just go one route and then follow that and then follow that. These are web works of narrative. And if you work hard enough at it, no matter which route you take, you'll eventually cover most of the terrain. Just that your way of covering terrain may affect your responses to it. But this terrain, this geography of textual material, and the navigational procedures which are offered to you as a reader to create your own experience of it, have been designed by an author. So the author hasn't vanished, it's just taken a different approach. That's the kind of hypertextual thing. Now in the cave, it's a little different in that the cave resembles more a theater or a stage in which you as the viewer are on stage with the actors and can interact with them. There are objects you can pick up and move around and make things happen. And it has the theatrical quality of being on stage and it has a second quality closer to cinematic qualities in which it requires teams of people who are programmers and designers and sound engineers and writers and so on all together to actually make it happen actors sometimes, especially with voiceover. So there is a combination of these two elements which are 
still generally taught in writing schools. That is, we generally teach script writing of both theatrical playwriting and screenwriting. But then on top of it is that the author has controls that you don't have as a screenwriter on the whole, that you are actually composing while you're there. You can actually add text even as you're working in the cave. So it's still a mystery how it works. It's still true, like most things in hypermedia, the media get more attention than the words do. You know, it's a little hard to get past the excitements of sound files and animation and so on to actually pause and focus on the text. But we've therefore worked on pieces in the cave that are precisely aimed at doing that. There's a piece in the cave that you start in this room and the texts actually appear on the walls of the cave, not in outer space and not in front of your face and they don't move. They're just there. You can take your glasses off and see the same thing. It's a kind of meditation on memory and the loss of memory. And there's a first a kind of frame element that does that. And then you get three stories, which are memory stories. And then while you're waiting, you've heard all the story, and you're waiting for what happens. The words start ripping off the wall. And you actually hear them peel and start swirling around your head. They flock about you. First, it's just like a disintegration. And you're watching this in disintegration. And you realize that with your hand, you can actually knock those words back and keep your memories, in, as it were. But when you hit them, sometimes they break up. And when they go back, they don't necessarily go back where they came from. So the three stories slowly get corrupted and entangled with one another. And in the end, this goes so fast that the user cannot keep up. Memory you know, goes quicker and quicker, so they tell me. And uh, eventually it all sort of collapses in on the user. And all of this is a focus on text. Even though there's this interaction with it, you're actually thinking about the text and thinking about the stories and what the stories mean, and then there's a closing frame piece that, that kind of makes a whole piece out of it. So it's possible, and we do another where we interpret a poem. You read the poem and you hear the poem, and as you do it, you're going through a kind of cinematic experience of interpretation of a poem. So in a way, you get more out of that poem than if you just try to read it on the page. So it's possible to bring literature into such a hot environment but, you know, the, the odds are stacked against you to some extent, and we often find a thrill about being in the cave that is not connected in any way to the quality of the writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems that you would have to draw attention to the words. You would have to make the other things incomprehensible without the words. That's part of the technique, is at least to make them so married to the words that they feel natural and your focus is still delivered to the words. But sometimes you just get these wonderful ideas. You know, one of the first pieces we did is called Hyper Table. You got your glasses on. When you wear these little shutter lens glasses, they're opening and closing about 60 times a second. And the computer is reloading at that speed, too. So you only see out of one eye at a time, but it's very fast and you don't think that's what you're doing. A table appears in front of you in black space. You're in like black outer space and there's a wooden table with some floating boxes around it. And you have a little hand that can reach over and grab one of those boxes and set it on the table. And when you do, it explodes around you. It's a big excitement. It's dead silent and suddenly, whoa! And you've got this whole environment around you. And there's, in one case, umbrellas falling, words flying about, and music and so on. Well, we did get one story in there, but mostly it was so much fun. You just wanted to have something else wild happen. So you're in aquariums, you're in factories with robots banging against each other and so on. It's just such a pleasure. I'm trying to rescue that when that was done in old software or even old hardware, you might say, because we changed computers. 
that doesn't run anymore, but we're trying to make it run because it's such an exciting place that the temptation always is to move away from the text. And yeah. last semester I wasn't there and I, I turned the course over to two grad students, one a writer and the other electronic music composer. And we now got the sound server talking to the graphic server where we didn't before, so now the sound server can trigger graphic events. So I wanted them to kind of develop a MIDI keyboard thing that would actually produce stuff and just sit there and play cave imagery. And of course, they did things like that, but they forgot about putting any text in at all. You know, that just that vanished. And so cave writing was not exactly accurate. But when we meet, the, this, I, told, I mentioned this first exercise, which we've just developed, is really to focus on language because the only thing that the non-programmer can do at this moment is put in text. So we're inviting them to sit down and work out the textual thing that they can kind of bounce around and we're going to develop hyperlinks for it so they could create a little hypertextual document. The first exercise is to put their name in. They had so much fun, they put their name in. They could put the coordinates, they could put the name where they want. They could have it rotating or spinning or rising and falling. Or they could put it way back in the outer space or put it up in front of your nose. One of them put it through his body so when you're standing in the right place, the text runs right through him. And so that is a kind of intention of getting them focused on language right away. And think about this is kind of story space. Everybody else can build fancy models, there's other projects there, you can land on the polar ice cap of Mars, you can visit an archaeological dig in Petra, Jordan, and see the dig itself and what's been found there, but also go through the reconstructed temple as imagined, you can enter into an artery that's had a bypass and see how the flow goes, and get in the flow yourself, there's a lot of kind of fun things to do, but we are in there to write and to see if writing works in there, that's our goal. I'm assuming that it's narrative that one has to know no, it could be it could be lyrical as well and theatrical. It, it, it opens itself up to everything, really. And of course, narrative is the hardest thing. It's always the hardest thing when you get into this kind of media. You can always have a kind of lyrical centerpiece and around that build a lot of things. But to have something go from A to B somehow is a little bit more tricky, especially when you get into the hyperlinks. But that's our goal. And of course, that piece, that memory piece, was a, a narrative piece. But Robert, do you feel? Can I go to my question? Do you feel that? This is a kind of Gilgamesh moment. I mean, in other words, that you're going from an earlier way of being to a new thing that's just arrived, even that 50 years from now, this, I, for, uh, when I say 50 years from now, I'm acknowledging that today, February 3rd, it's 60 degrees in New York City, and I'm not sure there is going to be 50 years from now. But are you imagining this kind of thing well, I, I don't see it as a Gilgamesh moment exactly, but I do see it as something that I thought, that's what I saw in, my, in the late 1980s, way before the internet, way before laptops, no windows, the Macs had the window operation, but, but IBMs did not, way before any kind of substantial memory in any of these machines had low hard drive memory and floppies were like 268K or something. <laughs> And in that primitive era, nevertheless, it seemed to me that we were headed into a digital revolution. It seemed obvious. And everything was going to be digitized. And so it was important for students to get in there and see how it worked because they were going to live in this world. So it became like a kind of pedagogical exercise to get in and understand how this worked. Well, when the internet came along, it was transparent to everybody. When I would use the word hypertext, in the early 90s, nobody knew what I was talking about. It was a magic word. It was like you know, something open sesame type of thing. And it had to be carefully explained. But now everybody uses hypertext every day. It's the grammar of the internet. When you have a website that says HTTP, that's hypertext transfer point. You're doing everything in hypertext on the web. And all that means is multiple links out of any window. 
but at the time, it was very mysterious. But with the mid-90s, when everybody rushed to the internet, and of course, commerce rushed there, and they began developing all these fancy new media devices. So you could do amazing things out there, you know, make things move and talk and everything. And so that excited everybody a lot and got a sense that, yes, that's where we're going. Film's going to be digitized, the sound's digitized already by then, and so on. So you just saw this happening. Well, in that sense, yes, the world is changing rapidly. It's much more like a Gutenberg moment than a, than a Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> but let's take the pessimistic view, which is my first. It seems very clear to me that the generation of editors that could edit has basically died off. And it's also clear that people under 30 don't, by and large, read very much. So I'm wondering if it is, in fact, the end of that altogether. Well, an essay of mine published in 92 was titled The End of Books. The Times published that. I didn't title it. They did. I think they perceived in what was I've written that kind of notion. I don't think so. I think what has obviously been increasingly clear is that as we move into the digital era, all those aspects of our previous era will survive in a different relationship. We'll be more conscious of books, those of us who read them, but there'll be many fewer people doing so. And that's already the case. I mean, students coming through now are much more comfortable on the screen than they are on paper. They would rather read something, look it up, Google it up, but then go to the library and try to find it. And this wasn't true already a decade ago when I was doing those classes. That, That was not the case, but it is the case now. So... Sure, we're into some kind of change, and for those of us who love books, as I do, it is a disturbing time. My feeling was a little bit self-defense to get in here and know what the enemy's up to. I mean, I still, this is what I do. I don't uh, do this hypertech stuff except as a teacher and little exercises in class. But even here, part of my goal was pedagogical in the sense not only of making people get online, get to understand this world they're going to be living in, but also to augment or alter or enhance their own reading and writing qualities. This exemplary ancient fictions course I used to teach was mainly aimed at offering young writers alternative narrative strategies to the so-called novelistic or short story one. And it was to look back at stuff that had been discredited by the rise in popularity of the novel, to look at forms that had been forgotten about that are still, I felt, were still very valid. So we were reading stuff for that purpose, and we did a lot of exercises trying to understand other ways of thinking about text, and it was hard work, and it was hard work for the students, it was hard work for me, very hard work, had papers to grade and then little fictions to talk about, and it was like every day was a lot of work. First hyperfiction workshop I taught, didn't even know how to make the thing run yet, I mean, I'm just being taught. The first one, all that was done, and in the, in the class we had done all the things I tried to do all that other course, it was suddenly just transparent. So it was kind of a moment where students could, even if they're going to go on and be novelists, print writers, etc., they could wake up to something more about what narrative is and what poetry is when you get it out of its particular form or substance even, you might say, its particular material. I was introduced out in San Francisco when I was doing the reading out there by a former student whom I hadn't seen since he left. He was in my first hyperfiction workshop. And I'd already seen when his books came out here in New York, he credited that workshop with transforming his notion of a writer as Andrew Sean Greer. So there was kind of a waking up usefulness of it for people who want to stay on paper. That's okay.
Like you say, we're not only heating up the planet to a dangerous degree, but we're also overpopulating it. But while we're overpopulating it, there's a potential larger audience always there. <laughs> it allows for ever smaller percentages and still a vast enough number of people that can support right now. <laughs> Yes, please. That's uh, on the Gilgamesh moment, Morris's question is that in reading Gilgamesh, you and we tend to impute an author. It's, it's certain operations, the only way we can explain them is that it's the fingerprints of a of subconscious literary consciousness that's, that's playing that together. Yeah. But what you're talking about in the cave, how are those going to be read? If they are going to be read, it's going to be very difficult there to say, well, someone came along and showed connected these in ways that gave rise to possible ironic juxtaposition. It, it looks like it's what the protocol of reading will be of, of the stuff you're doing there will not raise issues that... I understand that perfectly. And I think that, that relates a little bit to the movies in that respect. I mean, how do we really pin down who's responsible for this or that, you know? Yeah, it is so. I mean, did Robert Wise's editing make Citizen Kane or, or was it Wells's vision of it? You know, that sort of thing. You can spot qualities and when they're credited right now, the stuff is so in its infancy that it's like you do it and you, the, the technology gets out of date and you throw it away. So a lot of what we've already done, let's say, which is the only cave writing course that I know of, the things we've done, there's not a lot of it that even survives these early times. So we'd have to look ahead, you know, another, well, I don't think there's... You're ready for your Citizen Kane moment. Yes, that's it, there you go. Where someone comes along and really puts their stamp on what this art form ought to be. Right now we're very exploratory and that's pretty hard to see, in fact, I mean, you have to think that the first really great book after the Gutenberg Revolution occurs over a century later, when Cervantes writes. Now, there's a lot of other writing in between there, a lot of great writing, in fact, but bits and pieces. And when you finally see what a book can be, it really happens between Don Quixote Part 1 and Part 2, when a bachiller comes running in and says, you're famous, you're in a book. And that feeling that you have of the book being self-represented, and it's kind of a crystal moment in literature, that moment, and that moment probably has to wait until we've done a lot of trial and error and, and had very bright people do good things but needing a little bit more history of the medium before they could really find a way to do the great things. Robert, thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.